12 years ago, in season one, we did our first show on depression. Live from the nation's capital, Washington, this is the Robert Wesley Brand Show. Information, inspiration, entertainment, and empowerment. No complaints and no regrets. I still believe in chasing dreams and placing bets. But I have learned that all you give is all you get. So give it all you've got. I had my share. I drank my fill and even though my name is Andre Sidmore. Uh, I am a native, uh, born in and reared in St. Louis, Missouri. My first experiences with the depression came about the age of four, five years. Uh, I knew the feeling even before I was able to verbalize it. As I tell people now, uh, depression has been one of my oldest acquaintances. Uh, I knew him even before I knew his name. I knew it as what I would describe now, uh, a kind of feeling of malaise, just not really being able to put my finger on it uh, exactly what it was I was feeling. Like I said, I couldn't verbalize it as a small child, but I knew how how sad I felt. I knew how I was placed I felt because of it. Uh, even as a small child, I was able to see how other people seemed to be feeling and relating to one another. And I wasn't feeling that way. I just knew that I was different. How was I different? I didn't know, but I knew. When, when I was growing up, uh, I was really inspired by uh, Dr. King and um, also a TV host that I used to see, uh, David Susskind was his name. When I was growing up, you know, on the tail end of, of all the, the, uh, the civil rights era and all that, we were still living with a lot of that, that baggage. Uh, uh, and black people were trying their best to outlive down downplay a lot of neg negative stereotypes, one of which was that, uh, well, you know, black folks are just assassins of the King's English. So I wanted to make sure never to be that. Mm -hmm. I used to play a game with the dictionary. Uh, I would just flip it open to a page and uh, just go down the page learning the different words. And that was how, one of the ways that I found depression. And um, just finding the definition meant a lot to me because it, it gave words to those feelings. I remember, I don't remember how old I was, but I was very young. Um, you always knew when, when Aretha had a new record out because uh, we had it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember how well it just resonated. It said something to my soul 
when I heard her say, looking out on the morning rain, I used to feel so uninspired. Looking out on the morning rain, I used to feel so uninspired. And when I knew I had to face another day, I knew I had to face another day. Lord, it made me feel so tired. I knew what she was talking about, that young. That's a grown folks emotion. That's a tired person's emotion, a tired spiritually, exactly. uh, emotionally, physically person. But I knew what she was talking about. And how old were you then? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, maybe uh, eight, nine years. I don't right. know. You could feel, you felt what she was singing about in that song. Of course I did. Andre, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, and uh, good morning to all of you. When you hear that piece that I just played from our conversation earlier, what do you think when you hear Mm -hmm. your own words back like that? It's interesting. It's it's almost strange because, well, you're in radio all the time, but for a person who is not used to listening to their own words, listening to their own voices, it's kind of strange, but I can just relate to it. So it's like, I said that, and hearing my voice, I don't know how I sound to other people because I'm not in the habit of listening to me, but I can hear the, the emotion and all that even still. I wasn't even aware that it was so much there. Mm-hmm. You and I talked about <laughs> some of the factors and the situations and the circumstances that led up to your really seeking help for your depression at an earlier point in your life some years ago you were living in san francisco and a job Mm -hmm. ended one day literally a job ended i believe august 1st and your father died on august 2nd and later that week no he was killed he was killed the very next day and then shortly thereafter your home caught fire can you just tell us a little bit about those events and how they led you to a place where you ended up in a therapist's office saying can you help me my mother and my grandmother my paternal grandmother died 28 days apart the same year and both of them died from the same thing uh, same disease my mother was a lifetime smoker she died of metastatic lung cancer my grandmother died of metastatic lung cancer my grandmother never even touched a cigarette it was things like that going through all of that having all of those things happen one after another after another i reached the point that like okay this is just a bit much i was reaching shutdown stage basically put like i told you i've never had a problem dealing with death and dying not just because 
I'm an undertaker, but because it's the way that, that I was taught as a child. Death is just another part of life, and death is something that is final. It is something that's more of a concrete. It's not just a conceptual thing for me. So once I see that, okay, fine, I can deal with that part. Having people ripped out of your life, now that, as, especially as I get older, that does mean more to me now, because as a middle-aged person myself now, even more so is the fact that I never really had a whole lot of friends to begin with. But I can honestly tell you all my friends are my best friends. Most of the people in my my life I've known for at least 20 years. I don't have a little fly-by-night relationship. You find somebody who tells you they have 200 best friends, I'll tell you somebody who's a liar. I can't even develop relationships that closely with that many people. I have outlived so many of my friends, not because of AIDS or anything like that. It's just that most of my friends were my parents' age to begin with, even when I was a teenager. So I've just used them up. I need to get a new crew. The real problem with that for me is that every time you lose a friend, you've lost part of so you Andre, lost someone who knows things about you. And I would add that, too, to the loss of the job. And again, this was years ago, I believe 1992, you told me. Loss of the job, father murdered the next day, mm -hmm. home catches fire shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. And then I would add to what you're saying, that shortly after the home burned down, the end of a relationship you experienced as well. <laughs> yeah, another song, the end of a love affair, yeah. I have lived with this, a combination of the depression, rejection, isolation from childhood. So it's just been kind of a way of life for me. I can see how for a person just having something traumatic happen as an adult, when they've just been going along just fine, the little boat has been sailing along on an even keel and then all of a sudden gets hit by a wave. Exactly. I can see how that would be totally different. Basically, I have just learned to live with the cycles. And fortunately, as I've gotten older and have had more experience with it, the cycles are less frequent and they're less severe. It's just a matter of experience and, and internalizing. I've always been a very introspective person. I've never been a really introverted person, but always very introspective. So it's a matter of self-examination, just being able to see where I am, recognize it for what it is. And that's a key factor, too, I think, because a lot of times people can't recognize what it is exactly they're going through. Recognition is really key in all of this, too. There wasn't any real switch as such that I could flip to get out of it. I don't know how. I can't explain this to you. It's just how I function. I've always been a very functional person in the midst of my cycle. And also the biggest focus, at least at the time of life that we were talking about with the death and loss of jobs and all, the greatest love of my life, and no it wasn't that man, uh, the greatest love of my life has always been with my career. I knew at five years of age that I was going to be an undertaker. That's what I was going to do with my life. I have been in love with my profession. That has always been a motivator for me, just being able to go back to work. Because being in the, the operating room, being in the midst of counseling with families, that has never been depressing to me. People have always asked, well, oh, you're an undertaker. Oh, it's got to be so depressing. You're around a sad situation. Undertakers have a wonderful sense of humor, first of all. And secondly, there are a lot of funny things that go on in mortuary on a daily basis that you all just don't see. But not only that, one of the things that I always appreciated about my work was that, for the most part, aside from working on funeral services or being there with the family counseling, it tends to be very solitary work. So you're so saying, I could Andre, be there. that work was yeah. able to bring you back from periods when you're in a depressive state. Is that what you're saying? When we talk about how to deal with this, part of the problem is for us that we have such, and I'm not going to say that it's not justified, but we have such an aversion to institutionalize help and just going into institutions for help to begin with. What you would get from a psychologist or a psychiatrist is really, in many cases, not much different than what you would get 
from your grandmama sitting on the back porch shelling peas and listening to you and she listens and she takes in it is someone who understands your situation but is not caught up in your situation andre you went yeah. through about six months of that kind of talk therapy and so you did engage in that process and after that period of time you have found ways in the 15 20 years since to live with the depressive episodes when they occur and to conquer them. I did because I was at such a point that I was just so fatigued and so worn down after mm -hmm. dealing with it by myself. It got to the point that, yeah, I did have those times when I was in the operating room at 3 o'clock in the morning, just me and the body, and I got my little bumper going and the radio was on and, and I'm press curling some hair and just thinking through what I'm going through and I was able to process that way. Work was an outlet for me. And one of the greatest things about work for me is always that I was doing something that was of service to my community and helping other people to get through what was a traumatic situation in their lives has always been therapeutic to me. But I reached a point where even that wasn't working so well anymore. And like I said, I was coming to a total shutdown. I was having more and more of those days when I'd leave the mortuary, come home, shut the door, turn off the lights and the telephone, and there was nobody there but Dinah and me or Bessie or Billy or, or Miss Hamhock or whoever, because I've always been passionate about music. Who is Miss Who you think? Is that the same Louis Monica? Miss <laughs> Hamhawks. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You know what you need to have, and I don't mean just you specifically, you metaphorically, you need to be able to have someone who really can look at you from an objective standpoint. I've been telling people for years, it is not incumbent upon you to be anyone else's emotional bellhop. They need to carry their own baggage. I just wonder if there is, and I don't know how we would prove it, but I just wonder if there somehow, if at least in part, this isn't a matter of, well, in science is a phrase called cellular memory. And I just wonder if it isn't that we have from one generation to the next just inherited these things without even, and I'm not even talking about necessarily chemical imbalance. I'm talking about all the cumulum effect. Andre, I want you to give mm -hmm. us your final thoughts on this topic today. What do you well, want to leave people with uh, it, today? It would, it would be this. Uh, first of all, learn how to recognize what you're going through. And don't be afraid to seek out that help, but also learn what kind of help you really need. Sometimes people are seeking spiritual answers for the really psychological question, and sometimes they're seeking psychological answers for what are really spiritual questions. Learn the difference. And that will determine what kind of help you seek, too. Because your minister may not be the one to help you as much as mm -hmm. you think. Andre, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. We appreciate you. I hope you have a great day. Come back and talk to us anytime. Okay. Thank you all. I really enjoyed it. In our second season, we did another show on depression. Suppose black men were suffering through an epidemic. What if the disease struck as many as 20% of all African-American men during their lives? And what if 15% of those with the most severe strain of the illness died? Imagine that the disease made men miss work and made them less motivated and productive when they were on the job. Imagine further that even black men at the top of their professions were affected, rendered less decisive, their judgment impaired. 
And what if, in an effort to ease the pain of the disease, many African-American men medicated themselves with addictive, deadly drugs? What if black families were being destroyed by this illness? What if many of the men suffering from this disease lost hope so completely that they placed little value on human life, theirs or anyone else's? And finally, what if, while all this was happening, next to nothing was being done to get black men treatment and medications that are 80% effective against the disease. What some call the silent epidemic among black men. Depression. No complaints and no regrets. I still believe in chasing dreams and placing bets. But I have learned that all you give is all you get. So give it all you've got. I was walking this morning, it was four o'clock. I was just thinking about some things, some of the things we're going to talk about today. And then I could just hear the Spirit of the Lord just talking to me, just saying to me things. And I heard this so clearly because I was thinking about some of the things we talked about last week about faith and the waters parting open before you. And I could just hear the Lord saying to me, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. And I thought, okay, now I wonder how that's relating. And then I thought about some of the circumstances in my life and the things that I'm believing for and looking for. And when I heard that I want you to know me, it's like I want you to know my character and know that you can depend on me. I'm sure some of you all out there have people in your life who you know that when you call them, they're going to be there for you. You know that. You know them. And I think that's what God was telling me. I want you to know me. I want you to know me, Robert. Know me. I want to just start our conversation today by saying that when I first announced that this is what we would be talking about, Ruth, one of our LinkedIn listeners said, interesting, because many in the community refuse to acknowledge the problem. And by community, I know that she meant African-American community. Many in the community refuse to acknowledge the problem. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk about cultural taboo and stigma, cultural taboo and stigma of mental illness. And I have to be careful how I talk about this, because it's one thing to tell your story. There's another thing to tell the story of family members. And so I have to be gentle and compassionate with how I talk about this. I do want to say that mental illness has affected my family. And the thing about it that I find intriguing and interesting, because I have an aunt who passed away earlier this year, who had what was always described to me in the early 70s when this happened, and I was probably six or seven or eight. It was always described to me as she had a nervous breakdown. And so back in the day, that kind of covered everything that you think you ever could think of about mental illness. That's really all anybody ever said about her. As time went on and I got older, I could see that there were some effects in her life of the nervous breakdown that she had. You could 
probably tell if you saw her and she passed away earlier this year but nobody ever really said what it is that she had I heard the word schizophrenia sometimes but nobody ever really said that's what it was I have another cousin who was probably one of the most beautiful women you'd ever want to meet in your life who has had some kind of break in her life and now she looks very differently and has not been out of the house in years and there's been a decline there and we all know something has happened and maybe there are people in the family who know more than I do I've never heard a diagnosis attached to it when there are people who have cancer or people who have bronchitis or who have allergies it seems like in the black community you can always get a clear diagnosis of that they have allergies they have bronchitis but when it's a mental thing in my family nobody really kind of says what it is maybe they don't know in this particular case of my cousin I don't know that she's actively sought out a diagnosis to my knowledge to find out what it is that she has and if people know maybe they're just not sharing but that kind of makes the point there's a cultural taboo and a stigma associated with mental illness but my intention is to share voices of depression today and to encourage us to talk about it and to put a language to some of the things that many of us see every day in our families but just do not discuss that's my intention there are some people and Andre is a good example of that who have been depressed and depressive as they say and who have suffered with depression their whole lives he was eight years old and knew that he was different what he told me in that interview is that when he was eight years old he heard Aretha Franklin singing looking out on the morning rain sometimes I feel so uninspired and he knew when he heard her singing that that song was about depression and that's exactly how he felt eight years old some people knew that they knew that they were depressed they knew what that was and they been lifelong sufferers of depression. What I want to do this week is just let you hear what some of the people who are dealing with this, what they sound like, what their experiences are, what their feelings and emotions are, because a lot of us hear these people every day and don't necessarily connect what we think we hear in their voices with being depressed. This thought just came to me, and I'm speaking to the brothers from experience. And again, I have to be careful how I talk about this. But I think there are a lot of black men who have an, a certain affectation about them, men of a certain generation who we might look at and say, well, you know, they just don't really express themselves that well. They're not really open with their feelings. I think there are a lot of sad, depressed black men who we just look at them and say, well, he's a man. He just doesn't express himself well. He's just kind of moody. You know, he, he just kind of keeps stuff bottled in. But there's a look, and some of y'all who are African-American know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a look in men of a certain age. You can look at them and just see that their lives have been hard. They are withdrawn and they are depressed. You can see it. I think a lot of times the way that those brothers express themselves is they drink. I think they drug. If you look closely yeah, enough, yeah. you can see somebody's issues by the way that they live their lives. You can see it. You may never uh, talk about it, but you can see their issues by the way that they conduct their lives. And I'm telling you, I can look at my own family and see that a lot of the brothers have chosen alcohol as a way to find some relief, some respite mm -hmm. from the yep. feelings yep. that they have that have gone unexpressed their whole lives. The closest that you can get yep. to it and when everybody's sharing at the cookout or just having a dinner and a lot of the brothers are telling their stories from their generation, you can get to it a little bit if you listen carefully and drill down on some of the stories that they talk about. A lot of the stories are going to be cloaked in comedy so if you can get beyond the comedic punchlines of what you're hearing and just ask a follow-up question or two you can get to some of the underlying issues that have caused these brothers to be the kind of men that they are today. In their generation it wasn't accepted to be expressive with your feelings. In our generation, I'm 45 and younger, it is okay. Because for many people, yeah, yeah. even though you are 
functioning in your everyday life, there's a level that you're not reaching because you are, in fact, depressed. There's a brother who wrote a book called Black Men and Depression. Black Men and Depression, Saving Our Lives, Healing Our Family and Friends. His name is John Head. John Head wrote a book called Black Men and Depression. He worked for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Very successful journalist. I mean, has written for publications all over the place. Very successful in his career. And at the top of his game, completely depressed. A completely depressed person. Andre was not with us in the studio that day, but as you heard, I talked about him and I shared bits and pieces of his story. After our initial pre-recorded interview in our premiere season, and after Andre's live appearance on our first show about depression, those were the only two conversations I had with Andre. We never really talked again in all these years since that time. Only recently have I learned what became of Brother Andre. You've had some, a down period along the way. 1975 was not a particularly good year. For me, it, um, what shall I say about 1975 through 1983 hasn't been very good. In fact, the last seven years of my life haven't been exactly ecstatic for me. I haven't been ecstatic. I've been happy and um, somewhat, um, most of the time, pretty depressed. My depression is, um, I think, because of my empathy for humanity and my, um, my feelings the world and um, things and uh, I'm awfully upset when I have to do things to achieve a certain amount of status so that I might be able to do something else so that people will listen to me. So if I have to do sex so they can listen to social topics that might be um, viable, I'll do sex first. What was the absolute rock bottom worst moment in the last seven years? Well, the absolutely worst rock bottom moment in the last seven years when I tried to commit suicide um, through an overdose of cocaine. How long ago was that? Uh, it was not too long ago. Well, it was about four, three years ago in Hawaii. I was in an emotional state of... Um, I've never been quite so depressed. I'm a bit of a manic depressant anyway. Most of the time I put on quite a face and an act, but I'm pretty depressed most of the time anyway. I have, uh, as I said before, a lot of feeling inside for people and my love, my life, my job, what I feel I'm here for, my purpose. And I'm a little reluctant sometimes to get on with it. I'm afraid I'm much too emotional uh, to be an artist, really, um, to be a really good one, to be on the job all the time. For all my problems now, I was much worse, I guess you can imagine, when I was younger, probably totally uncontrollable. Um, I'm very stubborn, I'm arrogant, I'm egotistical, I'm also lovable, I'm also warm. I'm a lot of things, but um, it depends. I'm principled, I'm unprincipled sometimes. I am probably quite schizophrenic. That you once seriously thought or tried to commit suicide? Well, yeah, I really hate to respond to this question because I, I hate to answer questions that make me appear that weak, but being an honest soul, I have to to um, tell you, yes, I was quite close to that point at one time during my four-year hiatus. Considering it, yes. The, the, the whole... It's called, I was a manic depressant. I was at my low ebb. I really didn't feel like um, I was loved. And uh, because I didn't feel loved, I felt useless. 
I have a gentleman who reached out to me from another country, from Australia actually. He shared with me about his daughter who has a mental health issue, illness, and how difficult it is for the family, how he actually ended up one day in the woods looking for his daughter who had wandered off because in her mind, the voices told her to meet them in the woods and go play. And here's this father, she's seven years old. Here's this father wandering in the woods for hours looking for his daughter and he found her and she was playing and she told him exactly why she was playing because and she named the people that told her to meet them in the woods very difficult situation for families to deal with mental illness what do you say to people who have had exactly your experience who are listening right now what do you say to encourage them to motivate them what do you want them to know first of all I do want them to know that it's not a cliche no you are not alone you're not the only one who's going through this and you should do everything possible for you you right now. Only you know your position. But you should do everything you can to reach out to whatever source you feel most comfortable with. If you don't feel comfortable with church or a cleric, get counseling from a professional. Get the person, the institution that you feel most comfortable with. But don't just keep going with this problem because it does take its toll on you even when you can't see it. First of all, depression is a thief of time. I wish I had a dollar for every hour that has been stolen from me in my life by this situation, by the malaise, by the lack of motivation, by all the hours that I've spent on shutdown. Mm-hmm. It's stealing your life from you. Do not let that continue to happen. That's a powerful statement. Depression is a thief of time. It is. That's a powerful statement. Think Power- about it. It's a thief of time, and if you let it, it will also rob you of relationships. because yes, exactly. It- it isolates you and it causes you to isolate yourself and so it robs your time and it keeps you in isolation and it robs you of really good relationships of the people who love you who are trying to get in that you're not allowing in Mm -hmm. it robs you of that and those relationships whether they be friend or intimate or family those relationships can help heal you if you just let people in they can they can they definitely can you have managed to live all these years and not be medicated for your depression. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about that as a possible route or you don't? Hell no. Okay, yeah. You're not at a place where you feel like you need that. No, I'm not going to do that unless literally I would have to be forced. Okay. Now, I'm not going to say that it's a guarantee that it would happen to me, mm-hmm. but I have seen what can happen to people, literally. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. I'm not going there. No, thank you. Uh-uh. I mean, I know people who are on like Prozac and uh-uh. things like and that. And another reason why I absolutely refuse to do it, even to consider it, is because, and again, I'm not saying this is 100%. I don't want to, by any means, turn anyone else off from considering that Mm -hmm. as a possibility. But one of the things that turns me off is that in many cases, that is the qualifier, not all, Mm -hmm. but in many cases, once you submit to the drug therapy, you can't stop, Mm -hmm. depending on what the drug is. Mm -hmm. Because once that drug is in your system, you have to keep going with it. And I don't want to trade one bad situation for another. Mm -hmm. I don't want to become chemically dependent on uh, that as a means of handling something that I've been here to for handling on my own. What is your best advice for people who are struggling, who are challenged with, who are dealing with depression? First of all, it's 
very important to get away from the cultural taboo of getting help. You have to, have to, have to get help because most people, let me not speak for everybody, let me just speak for myself. When suicide was a question in my mind, it really wasn't about wanting to die as much as I wanted to stop feeling the pain of what I was going through. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, my belief in my spiritual beliefs helped me, but more importantly, I thought a lot about the people who I love that I would leave behind. Mm -hmm. And they became far more important than the chemical imbalance I was going through. So I thought it was better for me to reach out for help. I'm so glad I reached out to someone. Because you don't know, two seconds later, somebody might be reaching out to you at your worst point. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you might be their lifeline. Yes. You have to stick around. Stick around. You have no idea how many people love you. Every now and then, a thought comes to me of someone I have once upon a time interviewed in this space. And I sit and I wonder about what's going on in their world since the brief time we spent together on the program. And over the years, I have learned to follow up on these seemingly random thoughts about people I barely know or haven't seen in a long while. And as I have become more spiritually mature, I now know know and understand that the spirit of that person comes to me saying, remember me, put me back together as Clint Brown sings. And so not too long ago, I thought of Andre and I went back to look for him where we first met on Facebook. And this is what I found. From what I can piece together, Andre died in early October 2020. His journey down here complete, that brother has left the planet and gone on to some other space and time. Our lives intersected on two brief occasions and never in person. And now that Andre is gone, I would like to honor my time with him by leaving this footprint. The full interview I did with that brother one August morning many years ago, back when I was just starting out in this space and our paths first crossed. So here it is. Here's to life. Here's to love. Here's to you, Brother Andre. Thank you. Is this Andre? Yes, it is. Are you up? Yeah. It's Robert Wesley Branch. How are you this morning? I'm okay. Yeah, you sound like you're still kind of <laughs> getting the cobwebs out. Oh, no, no I'm wide awake. Well, you're the first person to hear my voice this morning, that's all. Right, exactly. Now, are you normally up at this time of day? Yeah, because like I told you, I wake up in the middle of the night a lot of times. I can't go back to sleep. I just lie here and think, listen to the BBC on the radio or something. I love the BBC. Good news. Well, this is going to be the easiest thing you do today. <laughs> so in our initial conversation, we reached out and we were talking about some other things, but then you brought up depression. And I'm so glad you did because, you know, as I've been researching it and just thinking about my own experiences about it, so many people, and we did a poll on LinkedIn.com and so many people have responded and are really looking forward to talking about this. So I think a lot of people, as you said, are really kind of suffering in silence about it. This is hindsight, but I'm pretty sure, even though we never really talked about it outright, I'm pretty sure that my mother also suffered from it. Mm. Um, just thinking about the way she was 
around the house at the time. And she, like a lot of people, like myself even, was very highly functional. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, she had no choice. She mm-hmm. had four children and, and a sick mother to take care of. Mm-hmm. But I could just tell her different moods from one time to the next. She wasn't a moody person, but there were periods, mm-hmm. down period. And experiencing those things myself, I just learned to recognize them so easily. And you and your mother never had that conversation? We never had that conversation. We didn't add a specific word to it. Like so many other things, we just simply understood mm-hmm. how each other felt. We communicated a lot non-verbally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the reasons I miss my mother so much. We could just sit together and heal each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just shared energy. Mm-hmm. That is so real. And there are so many any non-verbalized agreements within families. Mm-hmm. So many of my most treasured memories now, and, and even when I dream at night, we're together again. And mm-hmm. usually when we're together, we're where we usually were, at the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. And the dreams are so real. I can smell the collard greens and pork chops on the stove. <laughs> and I can hear Aretha in the background, and, and we're sitting there laughing and talking, and she might have her bumper there on the table in front of her, and we just be. She might have her what there in front of the table? Her bumper. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> That's your cocktail. Oh, okay. Is that what they say in St. Louis? Your bumper. <laughs> so you started feeling these things at three, four, five years old. You were able to, through your reading, you were mm-hmm. able to put a name to it at about age eight. At mm-hmm. what point, if ever, did you consult medical help to help you work with and deal with depression? The first time I went on my own to see a therapist, that wasn't until the early 90s. That would have been around 92. Mm-hmm. It was during a really traumatic period in my life. And I actually felt like I was going through a nervous breakdown, except I never had a nervous breakdown, so I don't know what a nervous breakdown feels like, but Mm -hmm. I I think it's a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. And it was just so traumatic to capitalize what happened was at that time I was engrossed in my profession and things just started to fall apart. Nothing I had any control over, really. I had three jobs. I worked seven days a week, 48 weeks a year. By agreement with all my employers, I only had three weeks off per year. That was at Christmas time because I told everyone I don't work at Christmas. Mm -hmm. Uh, I spend that time with my family. Mm -hmm. So you would go back to St. Louis during that time? Okay. I couldn't even tell you what the weather's like in place at Christmas time. I've never been outside the city limits of St. Louis at Christmas. So for three weeks during the holiday season, no matter what jobs you were working in San Francisco, you agree with your employers, I'm out of here during the Christmas break. Right. Well, good for you. You must be good at what you did at those three jobs for them to agree to that. Well, not just good. I was willing because right. I did work holidays. I did work overtime. I used to tell people that death was my life because I went from work to work to there. When I wasn't in the morgue, I was in the mortuary. When I wasn't in the mortuary, I was a professional pallbearer and mortuary representative. Mm-hmm. So I made house calls at night and removals, that sort of thing. You're in the funerary business. Uh, I'm not practicing right now, but yes, I am a mortician. I am a funeral director and embalmer. Wow. And no, that has nothing to do with depression. No, I was going to ask you, did you ever watch Six Feet Under? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, after the fact, yeah, I did. I didn't see it while it was actually aired, but I did get to see it. I loved it. That was, when it was on, that was my favorite show on television. It was great. What happened with me was one of the jobs, which actually paid the most money, Mm -hmm. which actually afforded me to be able to work in the mortuary full time because... 
contrary to popular opinion, no, black undertakers do not make a whole lot of money. One of the best ways to go broke is to be a black undertaker. Now, the qualifier is an employee of a mortuary. The owners can do quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, the employees usually, well, I got paid weekly. I was on the civil service payroll at the morgue, General Hospital, mm -hmm. and we had a staff cut. All of us were let go. That put a big dent in my pocket. Mm-hmm. I lost my job one day, my father was killed the next, and things just started to go downhill from there, economically. Literally, you lost your job one day, and the oh, next yeah, day, the your father was killed. August the 2nd, yeah. Wow, wow. As a matter of fact, it was my last night at work. I worked the graveyard just at the morgue. Mm -hmm. I came home that next morning, took my shower, went to bed, and had fallen asleep. And I'm not a superstitious person. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in superstition. But the first thing I remember was opening my door. Mm-hmm. And in my apartment, there was a long hallway leading to the living room. I had bamboo Japanese handprints on the wall. The first thing I noticed was that one of the prints had fallen off the wall. Never did that before. It had fallen off the wall and was lying there on the floor. Mm -hmm. I picked it up and put it back on the hook. And as I was walking into the living room, I thought to myself, now if I were a superstitious person, I would say that somebody probably died. Died because that's what that means when something falls off like that? Oftentimes, yes. Yeah something that has been in a particular place of they sitting on a shelf or something jumps off the shelf and falls for no reason. Wow. I just rehung it. Mm -hmm. I took my shower, I went to bed, fell asleep, and I don't know, maybe slept an hour or so, the telephone rang, and a relative was calling to tell me that my father had been killed. Mm. So I got out of bed and dressed and started to pack. I called my employers and told them what happened and called for an airline ticket. I am a very functional person mm -hmm. in stressful situations. I can function through my depression. I can function especially well handling somebody else's stressful situation. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't overcome with grief or sadness or anything. It was just that I knew this was a situation I need to take care of. So how do I take care of it? I'm able to, as I think a lot of people who suffer depression are, I'm able to compartmentalize mm -hmm. my feelings and just go on with the thing. But you do recognize that there's a difference between functional people who deal with depression in a functional way and people who, because I've been talking to some of them, who can't function. Oh yeah, a lot of people just shut down. Yeah, they can't even get out of the bed, some people. I mean, right. literally, I thought that was just a figure of speech. No, 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 it can be completely debilitating. Right. Uh, there are times when I have had that happen. There are times when I have been so drained that by the end of the day, I did come home and go straight to bed, turn off the telephone, turn off the television, turn out the light, just go to bed. But again, I know in the morning or whenever it's time, I have to go back to work. Okay, so, so for that time, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just complete shutdown. Okay, so educate us. Many people hear and heard what you just said, and they mm -hmm. think, okay, I go to work, I work hard, I'm tired at the end of the day, too. I drag my body home, and I just get in the bed, and I go to sleep until the next morning. Like, people will hear that and say, well, I've done that. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm depressed. What does it feel like? Is it just your body being tired, or is it your will, your, your whole emotional framework is like, I just can't go on anymore? It's a combination, but it's mainly, it's mainly the emotional. It's not just physical fatigue because you might not even really feel tired. It is both. It's both and, not either or. Okay. But it's definitely just a loss of will. It would be like just a, a drained battery. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the only analogy I can think of right off the top of my head. And oftentimes it comes after having just dealt with one thing after another after another for so long 
mm-hmm. and I just get to the point that I just don't feel like I don't have it in me anymore to keep going. Just like with that situation I was describing, mm-hmm. There's the loss of the job, my father being killed, the finances going bad, all of this culminated with the burning of my apartment, which had nothing to do with me. A fire started down the street and it jumped from one building to the next because the way buildings are constructed in San Francisco, all buildings are right next to each other. Mm-hmm. I came home about 4.30 that afternoon to drop off some packages I'd been out shopping. The last thing I remember was looking back at the hallway and admiring the gleaming hardwood floor I had just mopped and waxed that day. Mm-hmm. When I came home that evening, I came home to find out I didn't have one. It was gone. Okay, so wait a minute. Because you tell these stories like this happens every day to people. It doesn't matter very matter-of-factly. You walk up to your building. Do you see fire trucks? What oh, do you well, see? That's actually kind of funny. Yeah, I had been out shopping. I went to get back to the stores to pick up a few things before they closed. Mm-hmm. It was uh, January. It was a nice, warm evening. So I'm walking up Masonic on my way back at my house. It was the house on McAllister Street. Mm-hmm. For anybody in San Francisco, you would know. But uh, I'm walking up the street, and this fire truck comes in fast. I'm blocks and blocks away from the house. The fire truck comes in fast, and I thought somebody somebody's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> And I kept walking. Right. And, and I got a few blocks down the street, and another fire truck comes zooming by, and I thought, ooh, somebody's really in trouble. Mm, 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 but I kept walking, and I got a few more blocks down the street, and the third fire truck came past, and I thought, damn, mm. this is something big. And I rounded the corner and, and came onto McAllister Street and came onto my block, and all three of the fire trucks were sitting in front of my building, and I thought, oh, damn, I'm in trouble. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, that's what I said. Mm-hmm. And it was gone. The building hadn't literally burned to the ground, but there was so much damage I couldn't see that it smoke was just, right? Yeah, smoke and water, everything. So now, when you see that, when you say, "Damn, I'm the one that's in trouble," does your heart start beating fast? Can depression set in even when there's a lot of adrenaline flowing? I mean, you're an- you're anxious because this could be my apartment, or does well, it happen later? Actually, it didn't happen for me at all because when I saw all this, the first thing I'm thinking is, "Okay, what do I have to do?" take care of this. Mm. Uh, as soon as I was able, I was able to get into the building that night. I got in, I walked around, fiddled around in the dark as best I could and looked. Mm-hmm. It was a total mess. Okay, it happened. That's over. It's done. Now, what do I do? That's the way my thought process is. Yeah, you are really functional. You function in the moment. I deal really well with abstracts, but especially when you get a thing, bring it to me, put it right in front of my face and show it to me, I have no choice but to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am from Missouri. Show me. The show me state, huh? (laughs) I saw what the reality was, and now I know I have to deal with it. Right. Go on. Move on. The only thing that really bothered me was thinking, okay, now how am I going to replace all this? Because like I said, by that time, the money had gotten, well, it wasn't funny. It was, there was nothing funny about it at all. Mm-hmm. My mind was just racing. What am I going to do? The depression didn't come until a few days later. Mm-hmm. I got another apartment just a couple of days later. I was moved. The realtor took care of all that because it wasn't our fault anyway. They just moved everybody out of the building. I'm in the new apartment. And also at that time, I was in a relationship. We were living together. Mm-hmm. He was, corny as it sounds, the love of my life. Well, he, without any forewarning with no explanation simply walked out but I have to give a qualifier he left me that Friday afternoon at 3 Mm o'clock 
got on the bus going to the airport because he had a conference to attend in Southern California that had already been arranged. Mm -hmm. I understood that. I knew it. What I didn't know was, as I was standing there on that corner waiting with him on the bus, what I didn't know was that when he got on the bus and said goodbye, he was really saying that he had already decided he had said goodbye. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. He never told me why or anything of the sort. Losing the house was one thing. Losing the job was another. Losing my father was traumatic enough, but nothing bothered me, hurt me more than that. Mm -hmm. So, Andre, so you're saying that you and your partner woke up that day. You knew he was going to a conference in Southern California. You went through the whole day together. You had breakfast. You had lunch. He packed his clothes. You walked to the corner to go to the bus stop so he could get on the bus to go to the airport. You waited there with him. The bus came and you embraced, I guess, and said good he said goodbye, looked at you and said goodbye. And that was the final goodbye. And you had no idea, no clues prior to that. I had no idea. No. Wow. No, because I was just caught up in the midst of handling all this stuff with the house. Mm -hmm. I was so caught up with that. Anybody who's experienced a house fire would know what I'm talking about. It's one of the worst things that can happen to you. I would only wish it on one of my worst enemies. Mm -hmm. I spent two weeks just cleaning because I didn't have a lot of fire damage. I had smoke and water damage. Mm. That was a real mess. Yeah, because that smoke is that that thick black smoke yeah. that gets on everything that you got to wash yeah. down. And yeah. how long after the house fire? I understand losing the job on August 1st, losing your father on August 2nd. When did the house fire occur? January 7th, 1992. I was just in a slow decline. Okay. Until and, that time. And so how long after the day of the house fire did your partner leave you? Friday. Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock, he got on the 21 Hayes bus corner of Hayes and, and Broderick. I remember like it was two hours ago. So the house fire was on Monday and he left on Friday? Uh, house fire was on Tuesday. And he left three days later? Mm -hmm. And you had been living together? Yeah. Wow. And so you got into all of this because my question was, when did you first seek medical attention and you began to lay these facts out? Yeah. That drove you to a doctor for the first time in your life? Yeah. That was my first time really looking for help because I was just at the point that I didn't know anymore just how to keep going. It wasn't so much that I didn't think I could keep going. I just needed to figure out how. Mm -hmm. I've never been suicidal. I thought about it. Yes, I thought about it many times. I'd be lying if I said I hadn't. But I've never taken that step. Well, obviously we wouldn't be talking. Of course, some people are pretty bad at it. Well, you could have uh, tried. There are many people attempt suicide before they actually are successful yeah. at it. Yeah, a lot of people just don't get it right. But let me uh, ask you this, Andre, because when did you, and I apologize apologize if you don't really want to talk about this. I just want to know one little piece. When you're standing there at the, waiting for the 21 Hayes bus on Friday, when was he expected back? And when did you know that he's not coming back? Well, it was a weekend conference. Because mm -hmm. I remember telling him, well, you know, just go on and take care of that. And I'll just go on and keep taking care of stuff here. And I'll see you when you get back. He never said one thing. He left and we talked on the phone, must have been a couple of days later. He didn't mention anything about coming back. I didn't ask, okay, so when are you coming back? I knew that, well, he was from Southern California. Mm -hmm. I knew he was there with his family, with his mother. And so, okay, fine. He's just spending time at home. Mm -hmm. He never once said, no, this is not happening. And oh, by the way, I had his whole life in my apartment, like 20 boxes full of his crap piled up. So of course I'm thinking he's coming back. Never, never said anything. That was January. I didn't see him again until August. Okay, so a week goes by and you say, baby, <laughs> when you come home, and he says... He didn't. That's what I'm telling you. 
So there was no answer to the question? No, I don't remember formalizing the question. Okay. We talked, and when we did talk, no, he, he didn't say it. Okay, so we don't have to get any deeper than this, because if you didn't even ask the question, there must have been some other things going on in the relationship that you didn't even ask when you're coming home. I mean, because mm -hmm. that's just a routine business trip, and then you just don't show back up. I mean, there would be, I mean, I would think there would be what's going on here. I would think that would open up a big discussion about what is going on here. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that didn't really happen. No, okay. not in that way. I got you. So all of that made you think, how am I going to get through this? And you sought out medical attention. And what did the doctor tell you at that point? Did he say to you for the first time in your life, you are clinically depressed or whatever the diagnosis was? Well, I didn't get an actual diagnosis. Basically, I explained to him what was going on with me. Mm -hmm. And that led to about six months of therapy. And basically, that therapy consisted of talk sessions and just giving him background information on my life and, and what I was going through, how I was functioning. Mm -hmm. And no, there was no prescriptions, nothing like that. I've never had very many experiences with therapy, so I don't even know what comparative it was. It's like uh, right. deep psychoanalysis with drugs. Well, I did have a friend who went through that. Mm -hmm. Mine was nothing like hers. And seeing what the effect of her situation with the therapy was, I definitely didn't want to go that route. So you sought out a licensed clinical psychologist. What kind of medical professional was your doctor? Uh, he had a master's in psychology. Okay. And was at that time a graduate candidate. Nice. And so you had months and months of talk therapy. And at the end of that talk therapy, did you ever receive a diagnosis of depression? No, because actually I didn't even, I didn't finish it. I ended up coming back to St. Louis and it was just dropped. I got you. All these years later, you have a good understanding of what's going on in your body and in your mind, but you've never been diagnosed as somebody who is depressed. Is that what you're saying? No. Okay. I have not. I, have I understand. Not. It's undiagnosed depression, mm -hmm. which is what a lot of people, I would put myself in that category. There have definitely been times in my life where I go through these periods where I know something's going on and I know what that feels like, as you described when you were three or four. I've never been to a doctor to see about it, if you will, mm -hmm. but I've lived in my life long enough, I'm 44, to know my cycles and what I go through. Right. And the other interesting thing I'll say about him, the doctor that is, and, and I will call his name because he was very good. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could see him again. Dr. Pratt was his name. He was just what I wasn't looking for. I had gone to a registry looking for a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I told them what I was looking for. But they couldn't actually match me with the person I wanted. I wanted someone black. I wanted a male. I wanted someone who was either homosexual or bisexual. Mm -hmm. And someone with some sort of experience also with uh, couples there. Mm -hmm. Well, they found me someone who was male, but he was white and heterosexual mm -hmm. and no experience with couples therapy as such. But he turned out to be just the person I needed. He not only had a uh, master's in psychology, and as I said, a uh, graduate candidate, mm -hmm. but he also had a master's in divinity. Mm. He was an ordained minister. And I asked him about that. He told me, well, the reason I decided to do this was because so many times in my ministerial practice, I found that people were coming to me for spiritual answers mm -hmm. for what turned out to be psychological questions. Mm -hmm. And often they would come to me for psychological answers for what often turned out to be spiritual questions. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So he decided to marry the two. Mm, brilliant. And he had a very good understanding on both sides. Also, his father was a depressive. His father's name was Andre also. And his father did eventually kill himself when Dr. Pratt was eight years old. Mm-hmm. So he had a really good, empathetic, uh, mm-hmm. compassionate understanding of depression. So he did turn out to be the best person. So, Andre, how many months did you do talk therapy with Dr. Pratt? Uh, it, was, it was about six months. That's a good amount of time. And the skills or the awareness that you received as a result of that therapy has helped you in all the years since then? Because that was quite some time ago. It did. It did. And the main thing it did for me was just to be able to, for the first time in my life, really externalize mm-hmm. the thoughts and the feelings mm-hmm. uh, to get them outside of myself in an environment where someone else would hear and be able to receive and understand without judging, without doing that passive-aggressive thing that people so often do, the kind of, well, you really ought to just go on and put this behind you and get on with things, because mm-hmm. I, I know it's hard, but, mm-hmm. or, well, child, how can you still have that pity party? Mm-hmm. The kinds of things that really make you want in the depth of your depression to strangle the life out of a person and <laughs> call the police and plead insanity. Right, right. It was good to have a person that I could deal with and not have that. Mm-hmm. So, Andre, did your friends know, did people, because I hear what you're saying, people saying, why don't you just snap out of it? Did people around you know that you were going through depressive periods or did you suffer in silence? Both and. Anyone who has known me for any length of time knows that I do suffer depression. It's not something I've ever tried to hide. Mm-hmm. The thing about mental illness, one thing about it, and uh, depression in particular, people still treat the depression the way when I was growing up. I remember how people used to talk about cancer. Mm-hmm. It was something that you whispered about. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that you just talked about outright. It wasn't, so it wasn't something neighbors sat around on the front porch talking about so it. So Lemonade. Mm-hmm. Uh, the CDC counts numbers, collect mm-hmm. statistics. Uh, families and neighbors whisper, and <laughs> the church ain't saying a mumbling word. Right. So people are just met with walls of resistance. Nobody, well, I won't say nobody, but the message isn't an outright, shut up, we don't want to hear it. But people demonstrate it for you. When you are experiencing this, and you reach out to someone, and they give you the backhand mm-hmm. enough time, The Mm -hmm. message becomes loud and clear. No, this isn't something to talk about. I can't turn to family. I can't turn to friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just need to be quiet and deal with it on my own as best I can. Well, one of the problems with that is that people many times don't know how to deal with it very well. So they do get into Mm self-medication, drugs, or sex, or whatever it is, their method of choice. They do get into that downward spiral. That's how I chose to deal with it, and that by drugs and sex and alcohol. Those were my first weapons of defense against... And that that is so common. The last time I saw a counselor, which was like maybe three years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first questions he asked was, well, how have you been dealing with it? I told him I had been just handling it the old-fashioned way with with vast quantities of perfectly very cheap and readily available alcohol. Mm-hmm. But he, he didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a joke because I'm a proud royal man. Okay. But uh, it was just something that I learned to handle mm-hmm. and just go on with it. I don't like transferring my negative feelings onto other people. Yeah, me either. It's just a natural that I would be an undertaker because I've always been a caretaker. Mm-hmm. I've always been able to process 
other people's situations and emotions and handle them with a kind of objectivity mm -hmm. that they wouldn't necessarily have themselves. It's, I'm sure, learned on a lot of levels, and part of it probably just is, for lack of a better term, organic. Mm -hmm. My mother was the same way. She was the one in the family that everyone came to just because they knew that, well, I can't fix it. Uh, I know Anne will know the answer. Now, neither one of us are doctors, and so I'm not trying to play that role or anything, but do you think, because you did mention your mother, do you think that depression has a genetic link, that it can be passed from one? Actually, I have done some reading on it, and just based on my own experience and the experience of other people over the years, I would say yes. Mm -hmm. Because, again, in retrospect, I'm sure that my mother did suffer from it, and I think my father did too. Have you ever said that to anybody else in the family who agreed with you? I said it to other people, but they just didn't see it the way I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a conversation I've had. I have been talking to people in advance of this program on Saturday who listen to what I've said and would even listen to what you said and just the details that you've laid out on the table during this conversation. And I'm sure there are many, many more, but just what you've said in this conversation and they would say to us, oh man, that's nothing. Because I've been talking to people, Andre, who literally cannot get out of the bed in the morning. And I know what that's like. I do know what that's like. But there have been times when it has been that way for me, usually no more than a day, maybe two. But that's not the general rule. And by the way, I will say this. Mm -hmm. I feel fortunate in that as I have gone on, as I've, as I've lived and had experience with life and the living of it, I have gotten to the point of dealing with this thing in such a way that the bouts, although they still come, they aren't as frequent as they used to be. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, they're not as frequent, and they don't tend to be as intense. Mm -hmm. And the best way I could describe it would be like being caught in a severe thunderstorm. There's nothing you can do to control the storm. Mm -hmm. You just take cover and ride it out. In another word, I didn't even know as a child, but I later on was able to attach the word to the, the process. I've always been an introspective person. I've never been particularly introverted, but I've always been introspective. That comes in part from being the youngest born out of four. The others were able to go to school before me. I spent a lot of time at home with my grandmother who mm -hmm. had had a stroke. And did she live with you all growing up? Yeah, she did mm -hmm. until she died. I had grandparents next door. and Your father's parents lived next door? Well, technically speaking, they weren't grandparents. but they Okay, they played that role, right? I got you. Yeah, yeah. and I was a small child surrounded by middle-aged adults. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because they related to me as if I were another adult. Mm -hmm. They talked to me the way they talked to adults. They gave me ideas that I would not have gotten otherwise. They showed me how to look at the world. And one thing that has helped me is that experience because I got something growing up that unfortunately I don't see happening a lot anymore. Those old folks made sure we got our black lessons at home. Your black lessons? Yes. Like black history lessons? Or just uh, no. How to live yes. as a black person? Yes. I got you. Okay. I knew when I was five years old that I would be an undertaker. Mm -hmm. uh, don't ask me how I just knew. And nobody in my family thought it was strange. Again, I credit Miss Ann with that one because my mother was a very pragmatic person. Mm -hmm. And she always told us that it's not about how you think life should be. You just have to deal with it as it is. Mm-hmm. 
And she taught us also not to be afraid of death, that it was just another part of life. I used to think it was strange when people would tell me how they had never attended a funeral as a child. It seemed like we were going to funerals all the time because when we were growing up, a whole, practically a whole generation of the family just died out one right after another. Mm -hmm. I remember very clearly sitting in the dining room, the kitty table and the grown folks table, and in the living room was the open casket with Uncle Gene or Uncle Val or whoever it was lying there mm -hmm. and people laughing and talking and eating and that's just the way it was done. Okay, so wait a minute, hold on. So the open casket was in the home? Yeah. I've heard about this. We didn't have that tradition, but I've heard about this. I've heard about this in the South. It's dying out, but yeah, some people still do it, yeah. Yeah, well, the casket is brought in the home and it's there for days. Usually one, maybe two, yeah. Wow, and so you grew up like that? Yeah. Okay. Were other people in your family in the funeral services business? No, no. So at age no. five, did you tell your mom, I want to do this for a living? Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. Mm -hmm. Good for you. And I remember... God uh, gave you know, that. Okay. I mean, because uh, if you know at five, that's a God given. That's what your purpose oh, yeah. is. Yeah. No, I, I didn't go through the thing of, I want to be a fireman. I want to be right. a fireman. No, no. No, I knew I, I want to be an undertaker. And no, there was no particular incident I can point to that made me think about it. But nothing like that. I remember people would ask that typical question, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, boy, I'm an undertaker. And they said, and? Mm -hmm. Did you hear what he just said? Mm-hmm. No, what he say? Oh, he said he wants to be undertaker. Oh, yeah, I know. And she'd keep on with the hot water bread or whatever she's doing. Okay. I All think right. that's changed now, though, Andre. I mean, I don't know how old you are, and you're, you haven't told me. But I think that's changed now. I don't think people would be as surprised by that today as they were when you were younger and I was younger. I don't know, but I do still get the factor a lot. You like playing with dead folks. Well, first of all, I don't play. But I am very pleased with and proud of my profession. It me too. Is. And let me say this, and I'm sorry, because mm -hmm. when I have dealt with death in my family and you first go to the funeral home, that makes all, it brings tears to my eyes, that makes all the difference how you're treated at that moment in your life. And the way people talk to you and the way they ask you the questions, there's no easy way to say, I need the death certificate. There's an art to doing that and doing that well. And when you run across a funeral home that does that well, it is exactly what you need at that tender and vulnerable point when you're dealing with death. It is. And I have been fortunate also in that I've had an experience that a lot of people, even in the profession don't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. I have been both the professional on one side of the desk and the client on the opposite side. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't have it before, and I did, I definitely have a greater empathy now for the client. I have had the experience of, of having to bury both my parents, and actually I was the funeral director in charge. I, I embalmed both my parents. And I have embalmed other family members. Wow. You embalmed service. your mother and your father. Yes, and my grandfather, and yeah. Now, that and wasn't difficult to do, to see your mom completely exposed like that? Only the physical part, because I had never seen my parents knew, no. Right, yeah, neither have I. But uh, knowing that she was dead, right. you know, that didn't bother me. Okay. Uh, I had no problem accepting that sort of thing. When I found out, I wasn't with her at the time, when I found out she was dead, my sister called me and told me she mm -hmm. was at the hospital with her. And well, she called me before she died, and she was upset about it. Okay, naturally. But I told her, just call me back when she's dead, and I'll handle it from there. I can't do anything right now. And were you in the same city? Yeah. 
Yeah, I was here. But you didn't want to go over to the hospital at that time? No, I, no, no. At the time, I had just come in from work that evening. Okay. And I was completely different bar town. There's no way I could have gotten there. And by the way, even if I had gone, I couldn't have done anything. Right. I knew she was done. You did know that? Oh, yeah. I knew. And so you told so, your sister, when she's passed, I'll take care of everything. No, she didn't pass. She died. I don't use euphemisms for death. Uh-huh. Uh, credit cards expire. Bus passes expire. People die. I told her, just call me back when she's dead, and I'll handle it from there. At that point, I picked up the phone and called a friend of mine who owned the, the mortuary that I was going to deal with. Mm-hmm. I told him what was going on and I told him I'd call him back when she's dead and we'll just go in the morning whenever it's convenient for you and pick up the body and go from there. That's mm-hmm. where I handled it. Dead is easy. Well, Business is the hard part. Well, and let's take it out of the context of your mother because that's personal, but you have made it very clear in our conversation that when the trauma occurs, whatever trauma that is for you, you're a functional person. You're going to do what you have to do to get through the moment. And many people are like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's after, and you have had the time to process, it's the aftermath of that, that many times, I guess, the emotions catch up with you. Sometimes, with the exception of death. I don't have any, there's no afterburn or whatever you call it, emotionally with death, because death is final, death is concrete. I have no problem accepting that. Now, saying dealing with a relationship or something like that. It might sound perverse, but losing that relationship with the person I love was much more traumatic for me than experiencing a death because of the finality of the death. This right. person is still walking around. Right. There were times in that relationship when I came home from work and said just enough to be polite. Mm-hmm. Not because I was pissed off, not because of anything that he did or didn't do. It was just what I was going through at the time. I did what I needed to do. I got the meal on the stove. I went through the meal and paid the bills, whatever I needed to do. And I just got off in the corner and kept to myself. Well, that was time, valuable time taken away from that relationship. Mm-hmm. And it sends a message to the other person, even when you don't intend, that somehow there's something wrong. And I'm not going to let you in on it. And I'm not going to let you in on it, which is the part that hurts the other person. Right. And I do regret that. Now, did he know that you were depressed? Yes. Okay. Like I said, anybody who really knows me has spent any time with me. It's not something I try to hide. Okay. Well, this has truly been enlightening. We talked way longer than I anticipated, but there's so much good stuff here. This has truly been enlightening. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Yeah, I appreciate it's, it's, you. It's been great. I, I really enjoyed this. And, and the main thing is I'm just excited about the fact that somebody's going to hear this who needs it. Yes. And especially, it's a bad thing that people only, like like I said to you in, in that, that email, it's, it's so bad that people are so reactionary about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Hell, parenthood by itself is enough to cause depression. Mm-hmm. And thinking about having to deal with and be responsible for another life when you don't even feel quite in control of your own. Mm-hmm. Andre, it's ignorance because the assumption in that is. statement is that you're in your logic. Logically, a mother would never end her life if it made her child vulnerable. That's logic. That's in your mind. But in your exactly. emotions, in your emotions right. and in the chemical nature of your body in any given moment, that can be a toxic combination. And you're not in your logic about it. Yes. I got to go. But I have thoroughly enjoyed it. What a great way to start my day. And I will see you on the radio on Saturday morning. Okay. All right, man. Have a great day. And thank you so much. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.